So today we come to the final of our explorations of each of the individual Gospels and we turn to John's Gospel. And as I'm sure you'll be aware, as soon as we turn to John, if you read through Matthew, Mark and Luke, you're struck by its difference. We've seen lots of similarity between these first three. As soon as we start in John, even really the, the tone of the first verse, we notice difference. But John is full of lots of really rich theology. Often people's favourite gospel, I think. There are some stories and some characters that people really love in this gospel. Uh, there's lots of great stuff in there, but it's also a really hard one to interpret sometimes. And especially when we've done the synoptics, we come to John and maybe feel actually this is really hard to get our heads around. So today, one of the things we'll be trying to do is to talk about those distinctives, maybe why they're there, and trying to grapple with a bit of actually understanding John overall. The vague plan is quite similar to previous weeks. We'll talk about some introductory material, then we'll look at some key landmarks. But in between those two parts, we're also going to talk about some of the distinctives of John. And actually, by highlighting some of the distinctives, I think will help give us quite a good flavour of John as a whole. So I'm going to zip through author date location even quicker, or try to, than I have in previous weeks, just so as not to waste any time. And you can read this later. The author of John's Gospel is almost certainly, I think, the Apostle John. It's a bit more hard with this gospel to uh, work out the author for two reasons. One is that the external evidence isn't quite as unanimous as with the other gospels. The other gospels, everyone in the early church agrees on who wrote it. With John's gospel, the majority of early church writers say it was John the Apostle, but there are a few uh, dissenting voices. But it only takes to about the third century where everyone seems to agree this was written by John the Apostle. And then the internal evidence is difficult I guess it is there in the last chapter of John chapter 21 as we'll talk a bit later is probably an appendix added on to John's gospel just a little bit later not much later certainly but it sounds like it's written by someone else and in that last chapter the last verses uh, 21 uh, 20 it says that the gospel is based on the witness of the disciple whom Jesus loved so either he was the writer or he's the one who all the information has come from and from what John says earlier in the gospel, we know the disciple whom Jesus loved was the one who reclined with him at the Last Supper. And by a process of elimination, by far the best candidate for that is John the Apostle. He must have been someone very close to Jesus. He must have been one of the twelve because he's at the Last Supper. If he's very close to Jesus, he's probably one of the inner three, Peter, James and John. We know he's not Peter because we see him with Peter. We know that James dies really early. And so that wouldn't fit with what we know um, from this gospel. So the best candidate is that it was written by John the Apostle. And you can read in more detail in your notes. The date, again, there's very little evidence. It used to be that people said John was written really late, right into the second century. And then someone found a little bit of papyrus in the Egyptian desert, I think it was, which contains just a few verses of John's gospel, which we know comes from the beginning of the, sec the uh, second century which means John must have written at least by 100 AD, probably before, for that to have got to Egypt and have been copied in this way. Some people say John's written really early, actually before Matthew, Mark and Luke. They say he doesn't talk about the destruction of the temple and there's nothing there which puts it later. But I think the best is a slightly later date. Most people would agree on a date in kind of the 80s or 90s. It does sound like there's kind of more mature theological reflection on Jesus' life in this gospel. And that appendix we talked about seems to suggest that a lot of time has passed. So 80s or 90s, which means it probably comes shortly after Matthew's gospel. And so it's the last gospel to be written. And then the location, we really don't know. A few suggestions have been made, all of which are not great arguments for. 
but church tradition from the early church all seems to suggest he was, it was written in Ephesus. That's where the Apostle John seems to have spent a lot of his life. And so the likelihood is that is where he wrote this gospel. Let's jump into then to some of these key issues in reading John. Some of the things that make John maybe a bit different and a bit more difficult, which by heading or tackling head on, I think will help us get our heads around him a bit more. First of all, some of the distinctives. John is very different from the synoptics. You will probably notice that immediately when you start reading. His structure is different. His style is different. Jesus' teaching style is very different. In the synoptics, we've got lots of uh, short, pithy sayings and lots of parables. In John, we get fewer but longer kind of sustained dialogues or discourses. There are no parables, uh, not really any of the kind of short, pithy sayings. He has no narratives of Jesus casting out demons. He has lots, well, not lots of miracles. He has some miracles, but he doesn't call them miracles or works of power like the synoptics do. He calls them signs. He misses out things which we might think of as really important of the synoptics. There's no infancy narrative. There's no account of Jesus' baptism and temptation. There's no institution of the Eucharist, the bread and wine. And there's no account of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. But he also has uh, narratives which we might look at and think are really significant. And we think, well, why would you miss those out if you're writing the synoptics? Things like the Samaritan woman at the well, the raising of Lazarus, the washing of the disciples' feet, uh, and the setting of the Last Supper. So there are big differences, but actually it's also helpful to point out that the reason we probably think there's such a big difference between John and the synoptics is because the three synoptics are so similar. And actually it's a fair question to ask, if we had four Gospels in the New Testament, all of which were as different from each other as John is from the synoptics, if actually we'd be so uh, noticing these differences immediately. It's probably because of the similarity we're used to that John can initially strike us as a problem for being different. So the differences are there, but we kind of don't want to overplay them, really. What then is the relationship between John's Gospel and the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels? Well, we know, haven't we, we've said that almost certainly Luke and Matthew have made use of Mark. And most scholars agree that John is written after all three of the Synoptics. And many, probably most, think that John did know Mark's Gospel at very least. There's little things that John says which really only make sense if the author and the people reading the gospel had read Mark or had heard kind of the core stories in Mark. It's also possible that he knew of Luke's gospel. When he mentions Mary and Martha, who also appear in Luke's gospel, he makes no attempt to introduce them to us, which might suggest we're meant to already know who they are. He assumes we know the stories from Luke. Some people say he also knew Matthew's gospel, but there is less uh, kind of firm evidence for that. And some scholars have actually done work showing that John is kind of almost written as a companion piece to Mark's gospel, that you're meant to have the two together and they sort of fill in the blanks for each other. And so maybe John's writing at the end of the first century, knowing that Mark's gospel has been circulating for 30 or 40 years by that point, and they're meant to kind of complement each other and uh, kind of come together in that way. Another big question people have asked is, is John's gospel writing history or is it theology? And often people have said that John is writing theology, but the synoptics are writing history. This, of course, is a false dichotomy. All of the gospel writers are combining history and theology. And the theology is found in the history because God is the God of history who acts within history to perform uh, his works. And there are lots of good reasons to believe that John's gospel is historically accurate, that John is a good um, historian. I've put some resources in your going further section, which if you want to, you can explore that question in much more detail. What's particularly interesting is there are places where John's gospel 
and the Synoptic Gospels kind of interlock and they fill in the missing gaps of each other. And what this suggests is that behind them lies a historical reality. So as they both write their independent narratives, they are fitting with each other because they're telling us historical truth. So some helpful examples. In the trial of Jesus in Mark, and I think Matthew and maybe Luke, Jesus claims to have often taught in the temple courts. He says, no, well, why are you trying to arrest me now? I've, I've often been here teaching. Yet in their narratives, we've only seen Jesus in Jerusalem for seven days. He only visits Jerusalem once. He's only there for a few days. We only see him in the temple, I think, once or twice. John's Gospel, by contrast, as we'll say in just a minute, has at least three different visits to Jerusalem. It shows that Jesus had been there on many occasions. So he had been teaching in the temple on many occasions. So the explanation as to how Jesus can say that in Mark's Gospel is found in John's Gospel, which suggests that they're both historically accurate and they kind of fit together. Uh, another example which kind of falls in the reverse, in John's Gospel, the Jews, when they are um, complaining about Jesus and re rejecting him, they refer to the fact that they know Jesus' mother and his father. They even identify the name of his father as Joseph. Yet, of course, in John's Gospel, there's no uh, account of that at all, but it is in the synoptic. So again, John seems to know the historical truth. So even though he hasn't related the truth of the infancy narrative, the history behind it, those things kind of come together and they're interlocking shows that behind these two different gospel traditions is a historical core which comes together and works when two independent writers are writing the truth, basically. It's also the case that John's very accurate in his geography, knowing about locations, knowing about distances. And he talks about Judaism pre-70. Remember, 70 AD is when the temple's destroyed. Judaism changes hugely from that point on. But even though he seems to be writing in the 80s or 90s, he talks very accurately of Judaism pre-70, which again suggests historically accurate uh, information from the time rather than the stories made up in his own day. And if we think about some of the specific differences, there are good plausible explanations for this. So one of the uh, stark examples is all throughout the synoptics we find Jesus constantly preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And things are happening because the kingdom of God is breaking in. That language is much, much rarer in John. Jesus is talked about as the king but the kingdom of the God is rarely, if ever, present. But he does talk a lot about eternal life, which very rarely comes up in the Synoptic Gospels. And people have pointed out that actually the language of eternal life suits someone who's more familiar with Greek thought than does the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is very much uh, a Jewish way of thinking suited to those in Palestine. But if John is writing to Jews still, but who are Greek speakers living in the Greek world as Ephesus was, the concept of eternal life is going to make more sense to them than the concept of the kingdom of God. And we see as reference there, Matthew is a place where Jesus um, uh, equates the kingdom of God and eternal life. So it's quite plausible that that is the explanation for what's going on there. So John is writing accurate history and he's writing deep and profound theology and the two are together just as they are in the synoptics. Thinking then about chronology and geography, Remember, in the synoptics, even with their differences, they all have this broad structure of um, a ministry up in the north in Galilee, a journey down through the country, and then the last week of Jesus' life in Judea and Jerusalem uh, with all the events that happened there. They've all followed this structure. They all, therefore, sound like it's in a fairly short period of time. We only have one Passover. We only have one visit of Jesus to Jerusalem. But John doesn't use that structure at all. He has several visits to Jerusalem uh, and a few different narratives scattered throughout in Galilee. 
He records at least three Passovers, and Passover only happens once a year. So we know in John's Gospel there are at least three years of Jesus' ministry. This doesn't mean that John and the Synoptics are in contradiction. Uh, it doesn't mean that the Synoptics never say that Jesus hadn't previously been to Jerusalem, they hadn't celebrated a Passover there. And as we saw with the Synoptics, their geographical structure is very much part of their theological message. And so most people think that John actually is a more accurate um, portrayal of the chronology of how things worked. Uh, Jesus' ministry is probably longer than it might seem from the Synoptic Gospels. There were these multiple uh, visits to Jerusalem. So remember, the Synoptics aren't lying to us because we said week uh, one that Greco-Roman biography, you kind of have this constructed chronology in which you put the true stories. You don't have to follow the order things actually happened. And they've chosen to do it in such a way to teach us a message. John, it seems, has probably done that as well, but has less so and has a more uh, diverse uh, structure in terms of uh, geography and chronology. Another huge debate with John's Gospel has been the kind of background. What kind of conceptual world is John working in? It used to be thought that John is very Greek, that he's ignored almost all of his Jewish heritage, that he's really influenced by Greek philosophy particularly and by Eastern religions, all sorts of different things. But actually we now know in the last century, a century and a half, that even things like John's dualism, so the pairings of light and dark and life and death and uh, from above and below, even they, though they're very much prominent in Greek philosophy, were also found in Jewish texts. So texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, we talked about week two, these um, texts found at Qumran on the Dead Sea, they bring in this idea of dualism and there's these sons of light and the sons of darkness who have this great war. So even though there's lots of affinities with Greek thinking and Greek ways of understanding things, actually all of that was found in Judaism as well. And John uh, refers to or alludes to the Old Testament so much that his primary background must be the Old Testament. And really the thing you really have to uh, know and be prepared to dig into to understand John's Gospel is the Old Testament. Because almost every scene is alluding to a particular story or a particular aspect of something that happens uh, in the Old Testament story. Another huge debate has been over the purpose of John's Gospel. Was John writing for people who are already Christians to encourage and support their belief? Or was he writing to people who aren't even Christians yet and need to understand who Jesus is? Well, we're helped first in that John states his purpose at the end of the Gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Sadly, though, even though he gives us a purpose statement, it's not quite as simple as it might sound. The word in there um, that you might believe, there are two different versions of it found in the manuscripts. One has an S and one doesn't have an S. And whether it has an S or doesn't have an S is an indication as to whether he's talking to people who need to start believing and then believe or people who need to continue to believe. But then to make it even more complicated, some people say, oh, you could use either one for either anyway. So actually, if we look at the content of the gospel, it does seem more likely that he's talking to people who aren't yet Christians and who need to understand who Jesus is and need to respond to him. Everything within John seems to be so, uh, or so potentially evangelistic that it makes best sense that this is particularly written to Jews in the diaspora, in the Greek-speaking world, who don't yet believe in Jesus. But of course, it's also true that it would be of help to Christians back then and ourselves as well. 
And he does include teaching for Christians in the farewell discourse from chapters 13 to 17 we'll look at. There's lots of teaching there for disciples. So there's lots for Christians as well. And actually, I miss this. It's interesting to compare this purpose statement in John's Gospel with the purpose statement in the letter of 1 John, which is also written by John. In John's Gospel, the purpose um, is that by believing Jesus the Christ, you may have life in his name. In 1 John, the purpose is that you may know that you have eternal life. There he clearly assumes you already have eternal life, and I'm uh, helping to convince you and to reassure you. He speaks differently in John's Gospel, which again supports the idea his purpose is to say, you people who don't yet believe in Jesus, you need to understand who, it is, who he is, and you need to believe in him. And the final element, which is a bit different in John's Gospel, is his teaching and the way he teaches, the style of his teaching. I've already said the synoptics have these short, pithy sayings, have parables. John has these long, uh, complex discourses and no parables at all. Some people say this is evidence of Jesus speaking in different ways in different contexts. So particularly people say Jesus spoke in one way with kind of the common people of uh, Galilee. And when he's in Jerusalem, where there's more educated people, where the religious authorities are, he might use this more almost kind of elevated, lofty speech we find in John's Gospel. And that's kind of plausible. And it's interesting, there's a little scene in both Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, which sounds much more like the Gospel of John than it does any of the synoptics, where Jesus is talking about God having revealed things and he being in the Father and the Father being in him. And you feel like you're in the middle of John's Gospel. But actually, there's these little snippets in Matthew and Luke, which may well suggest that at times Jesus did speak the way that John has recorded and that Matthew and Luke in these two instances have chosen to include this. Another alternative, which even conservative evangelicals, the people who uh, are less likely to see any diversity in the Bible, uh, agree with, is that the words of Jesus in John may be the Apostle John's mature uh, kind of interpretation and reflections upon what Jesus said. So in all the Gospels, we've got the, the, um, the voice of Jesus, the general tenor of what he says, rather than the exact words. But some people say, actually, it feels like John is very much giving a more um, uh, kind of more matured version of Jesus' sayings, which has clearly gone around his mind and has been used in lots of different teaching contexts, which John then puts into um, writing. And this would fit with what we know of ancient history, that you're not expected to write verbatim words of what was actually said. You're expected to give uh, kind of the gist of what was actually said at the time. And what's also really interesting is that for all the big discourses in John's Gospel, you can find short sayings in the synoptics, which should, could easily be kind of the core saying behind the discourses. So it is plausible to say John knows of these pithy sayings Jesus says, and of lots of others of Jesus' teaching, and he has brought his own interpretive slant onto that, which he's put into these discourses of Jesus. So either Jesus spoke very differently in different contexts, or what we have in Jesus' teaching here is John's mature uh, reflection, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit, his interpretation of Jesus' words. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. I think, yeah, I think it's perfectly plausible and likely that Jesus sometimes, if not often, said a lot more than he says in the Synoptic Gospels. Same thing with Acts. You read the sermons in Acts, and they're tiny. They take like two minutes to read. That's not a, a sermon. Um, chances are they're much bigger, actually. They're in abridgment. So I think you're right. I think I lean on the side a bit of both. I think there's some of John's 
in, not embellishment, but interpretation here. He's tailoring it to his situation. But also, I think Jesus at times would have spoken at much greater length. There's some of the distinctives then of John, and even just doing that, hopefully, gets us a bit into the world of John, out of synoptics, into thinking a bit more like he does, seeing how things work a bit more for him. Let's have a look at an initial overview. We've seen throughout each week that getting this map of the big shape is quite helpful, uh, and this hopefully will be helpful if you want to read the Gospels on your own later to see what's going on at different points. John's Gospel, generally speaking, is divided into two halves, and then with a prologue and an epilogue stuck at the front and the end, respectively. John opens with this prologue. In the beginning was the word. We'll look at it in a minute. It's really famous and we all know really well, uh, but very different, again, from the synoptics. But it reveals a huge amount about Jesus. It's that window through which you're meant to interpret everything else that comes in the gospel and introduces lots of the key themes, lots of key words, light and life, uh, children of God, all sorts of different things come into these 18 verses, which are then expanded upon in the rest of the gospel. The first main half then, chapter 1 up to then chapter 12, is often called the Book of Signs. And this is the uh, ministry of Jesus, both in Jerusalem and in Galilee, where he performs a number of miracles, which are called signs, which is why people have called this the Book of Signs. Uh, also, we have a lot of these discourses and teaching, although we do also get teaching in the second half of the Gospel as well. And chapters 11 and 12 are sometimes put with this, sometimes put with the next section, but probably forms some sort of a bridge actually between the two. There's a movement from the ministry of Jesus to the um, final week of Jesus' life and to him talking to his disciples. The second half of the Gospel, with chapter 13 right through to the end of chapter 20, is called often the Book of Glory. In John's Gospel, the uh, death of Jesus, the crucifixion, is often referred to as him being glorified. And so the Book of Glory is saying it's the book about Jesus' death. So John takes almost half, just under half of his Gospels, to talk about the last week of Jesus' life. A big chunk of that, chapters uh, 13 to 17, are what's known as the Farewell Discourse, which is a long section of teaching given by Jesus to the disciples on the night of the Last Supper. And then 18 to 19 are John's account of the arrest, trial and crucifixion. And then 20 contains John's resurrection narratives, which are quite similar to especially Luke's um, resurrection narratives. And then this last chapter, 21, uh, is often seen as an epilogue, often seen as a separate part of the gospel because chapter 20 ends with a couple of verses which very much sounds like an, a kind of a finishing, a full stop at the end of a text. The other reason people suggest this is a separate part written later is that the last scene in chapter 21 is a conversation between Jesus and Peter and the beloved disciple. And it seems to be implying that some people believe the beloved disciple, John, would not die before Jesus comes back. But in this conversation, Jesus clarifies, no, that's not what I said. What I said, basically, is I'm not telling you what's going to happen. I didn't say he's not going to die. The most likely situation seems to be that by the end of the first century, there were some people saying, John the Apostle has just died, but we'd heard that Jesus said he wouldn't die before Jesus came back. What's going on? But actually, they'd misheard. That wasn't true. And so people who had John's Gospel, probably in Ephesus, wrote the final chapter actually to prove, no, no, Jesus never said that. What Jesus said was that I'm not going to tell you whether he's going to be alive or dead. Um, there's that, and they say we are the ones who have heard the testimony of the beloved disciple, and we know his testimony is true. Even the use of we there suggests this is written by different people to the rest of the Gospel. So it would be a really early edition, very much part of canonical scripture. I would fully, fully support um, but probably, I do think, I, I believe that is a separate part 
of the gospel added on the end. Let's dive into some in-depth in look at some landmarks. Any questions so first? So I've thrown out a lot of stuff there, all very different to what we looked at before. Any questions from so far? Excellent. We won't get through everything in these notes, as usual. But we will look at the prologue. prologue. If you've got a Bible, why not open to John 1? This is, I guess, a lot of people's, one of people's favourite passages of the Bible, something we hear a lot at Christmas. Therefore, one of the passages maybe a lot of people, even outside of any church context, might know of. Mark started his gospel, you remember, with uh, John the Baptist. And then Matthew and Luke move back about 30 years and start with the announcement of Jesus' birth, or of John the Baptist's birth, in uh, Luke's Gospel. John takes us even further back, right far back as far as creation, or actually even uh, beyond creation, really, to the Word dwelling with God before creation. And just like that very first verse in Mark, where Jesus is introduced as the Christ and the Son of God, which is the lens through which we're meant to interpret everything that comes, and just like the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke, which do the same thing, we're meant to read this, and it's meant to shape our understanding of what comes. We, as the readers, already know who Jesus is. We know where he's come from. We already know, actually, the shape of his mission as well from this prologue. So it's only 18 verses, but it's meant to be hugely significant for us as we try to understand the gospel. So John opens with the first five verses, which are all about creation. When you hear the words, in the beginning, you're meant to immediately think, oh, I've heard this story before. I know how this goes. I know this goes, in the beginning, God created. But actually, what John says is, in the beginning was the word. Where Genesis, the first account of creation, has God, John has come and stuck this word right in the middle of it. He's taking what we sometimes call Jewish creational monotheism, monotheism, which means there's one God who's the creator of all the world, and that's a a key element of who God is. He's taken that, and he's sticking Jesus right slap bang in the middle of it. Right there, the kind of third word of the gospel is a huge statement to make, that it's not just God who's in that position. Actually, this word figure is coming in there too. The identification of Jesus as the word has been hugely, hugely debated. This is one of the things where people have debated between Greek or Jewish. Some people say this is a Greek philosophical term. If you're familiar with uh, Greek philosophy and Plato and different people, the word is this rational element. He's a mediator often. He's really important in all of that. But actually, from the rest of the gospel, it's much more likely that John is thinking in Jewish terms. And there's a few words in the Old Testament which are probably far more important. The first one, given the allusions to Genesis 1, is the creative word of God in Genesis 1, where God speaks, he says, let there be light, and there is light. God creates through his spoken word. That's probably in John's mind here. Then there's the really frequent occurrence of the word of the Lord in the prophets. When a revelation comes from God through a prophet, it usually starts with this statement, the word of the Lord came to whoever it might be. That's all about revelation. So there's probably something here of identifying Jesus with revelation coming from God. And then some people have pointed out in, um, in the Aramaic uh, paraphrases of the, New, or the Old Testament, which were used by the time of Jesus, the word memre, which means word, was used as a description of God or as a name for God. And so a lot of Aramaic speakers in the Jewish world at the time would have associated word as a, a name or a title for God. So the likelihood is all these things are mixed in there. So when we hear, in the beginning was the word, we're meant to think this is about 
sticking someone in God's place and this person is linked to God's creative power, he's linked to God's revelatory power, he somehow reveals something of God and there is something divine about him to start off with. And all those first five verses about creation, notice that uh, in this word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus hasn't turned up on earth yet. That actually is still about creation, even though we tend to think of it about Jesus' ministry. Verses 6 to 7 introduce us to John the Baptist. He's presented as a witness, and witnessing will become a really key theme throughout this gospel. And then 9 to 13 summarise the story it's actually told throughout the whole of this gospel, that Jesus, even though he is the true light, in contrast to John, who was not, comes to his own people, he comes to the Jews of the day, but actually they don't accept him. But the amazing promise is for those that do accept him, there is a new birth, think John 3, Nicodemus, there's a new birth which comes and makes them children of God. And it's interesting, just looking at different New Testament theologians, John always speaks of Jesus as the son of God and believers as children of God. He never talks about us as sons of God, whereas Paul, in his letters, will distinctively call us sons of God. Uh, so not a contradiction, but an interesting distinction the two authors are making. With verse 14 through to 18, the end of the prologue, the background changes. So far, it's all been about creation. There's the allusion to Genesis. There's the creative word. There's light and darkness really prominent in Genesis. There's life. With verse 14, we move along the Old Testament story, and the conceptual background is Moses and the events on, the Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai. This word is said to have come and to have dwelt among us, which literally means he pitched his tent or his tabernacle among us. He's saying this word came and was like the tabernacle, the uh, portable temple tent that the people of God had in the desert around Mount Sinai. He came and he was a new tabernacle for us uh, on earth. He's the place where God and where people actually meet. And then things like he says he's full of grace and truth. This is a pairing which you often find in the Old Testament as descriptive of God and probably particularly alludes to Exodus 34 where Jesus has an encounter, uh, Jesus, where Moses has an encounter with God and God is said to reveal to him there here that he is full of grace and truth. And even this statement, grace upon grace, is probably actually better put grace instead of grace, which is saying the old covenant was actually one of grace. The law was given and Israel was saved out of Exodus, uh, in the Exodus as an act of grace. But now there's a, a new type of grace almost coming in Jesus. There's grace instead of or in place of grace coming. It's the, old, the new covenant coming in place of the old covenant. And the prologue ends with the statement that no one's ever seen God, but this one who's coming is the one who reveals him to us. And the word used for um, Jesus' revealing there or his making known is the word from we get the term exegesis, which you may or may not have heard of. To exegete something is to pull the meaning out of a passage, whether it be the Bible or something else. It's to rightly understand it and to kind of take out all of the meaning from it. Jesus is being presented as the one who comes in order that we might rightly understand God. We might rightly uh, kind of interpret who he is and understand him. And throughout the gospel, Jesus will keep saying that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father that his words are revealing the Father who sent him. So the, creation, the uh, prologue started with creation and it moved on to the Exodus. But this theme of creation, I think, goes all throughout. If you read through the prologue, there's so many occurrences of things being and things becoming. 
And this is slightly less obvious in English, but in the Greek original, there are two different verbs used for being and becoming. There's the verb to be, a me, and a verb which is hard to translate, but which is kind of um, becoming or being, uh, which is ginomai. And if you look at that uh, translation I put just below, I've put in bold all the words which are from this verb to be, and I've underlined all the words which are from this verb to become. And you'll see the prologue is saturated with this theme of being and becoming and being and becoming. And we start with this uh, being and becoming at creation in the first five verses. But then by the time we've got down to verse 12, we've got people becoming children of God. There's creation, but there's creation in the past, and there's also creation in the present. And I think John actually wants us to see that this arrival of the word, the arrival of Jesus on earth, is actually the arrival of a new creation. He's deliberately alluded to Genesis 1. He's writing a new Genesis 1, as it were. This is a new creation narrative, but it's a creation which is going to come through the work of this word, of Jesus coming to the earth, of Jesus revealing the Father and making children of God. In Jesus, the hope of new creation promised in the Old Testament is beginning to come reality. And so that is the kind of matrix of ideas and expectations we have as we read this gospel. This one has come right from being with the Father. He himself is God. He's come to reveal God and he's come to institute new creation and a new covenant, grace instead of grace. And then we come into the first part of the ministry of Jesus, that first half I mentioned. And there's lots that goes on here. There's the miracles called signs and there's long discourses. But we're going to talk just briefly about the signs, the miracles, and then a particular element of Jesus' teaching, which is quite prominent in John's gospel. First of all then, talking about these signs, Jesus performs far fewer miracles in John's Gospel. In the synoptics, you've got miracles happening all over the place, healings and different things happening. John is much more restricted. It's debated exactly how many he has, but he has between kind of seven and nine key miracles. And he never uses the word miracle or kind of powerful uh, power act. He uses the word signs, and particularly on the lips of Jesus, he uses the words miracles. And whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, these miracles are uh, evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking in. They're evidence that now is the time when all the things that were broken by sin are being fixed. The dominion of Satan is being kind of pushed back. The boundaries are being pushed away. In John's Gospel, that is still true. But actually, they're there primarily to tell us about Jesus. The fact that they're called signs is meant to say they're pointing towards something. They're meant to reveal something to us. And they're revealing to us things um, about Jesus. And they're not all called signs, but it's interesting that the first one, uh, which is the change of water to wine in Cana, and then the second one, which is the healing of somebody in John 4, are numbered as the first of his signs and the second of his signs. And uh, John doesn't keep doing that, but the implication is that each of these big miracles that happens are signs which are taking place. In the synoptics, interestingly, to ask for a sign is a bad thing. When the Pharisees come and they want signs, they want these proofs from Jesus of who he is, actually Jesus criticises them. But Jesus isn't saying, well, no, I shouldn't give you any signs or signs aren't a good thing. What Jesus is saying in the synoptics to uh, the Pharisees and different people is he's already doing signs. He's healing people left, right and centre. He's casting out demons. All the signs are there, but they're refusing to interpret them. And so when they come and they try to test him and they say, well, perform a sign for us so you can prove to us who you are, Jesus refuses to do it because they're trying to test him and they're ignoring the signs he's already given. 
that John wants us to see deeper meanings behind every one of these miracles, and they're meant to tell us about Jesus' identity. And to kind of understand what they're trying to tell us, we need to look at things like the details of the account. So things like in John 2, when Jesus turns the water to wine, it's really unusual or odd that he points out the water was there for the Jewish rites of purification. And it's odd that it becomes a drink, because you'd think you'd take the water that's there for drinking, and you make that into wine if you want some drink. But actually, it's the water for the Jewish rites of purification, i.e. washing, so you can be uh, ritually clean to then eat, which is transformed into wine. And then it ends, quite oddly as well, it ends um, with the groom saying to the master of the feast, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people are drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. And then John says, this is the first of his signs. You've kept the good wine until now. What? Dot, dot, dot. You're meant to think, what's the implication of the Jewish water, the Jewish rites of purification, being converted into the wine, which is the finest wine, even though it's come later, with no explanation, dot, dot, dot. You're meant to see this as a symbolic picture that Jesus is coming to transform the Jewish rites of purification, to bring something even better. That everything that God's promised is coming, that the Jewish um, history is being fulfilled, as it were, and perfected by these water being turned into wine. So... Each one of these scenes, we look at the details, we look at Old Testament allusions and stories, and we just look at any explanation given to it. Often the easiest thing to miss is the fact that the narrator tells us why this thing is important, and actually listening very carefully to what he says tells us what it's about. But often, in the life of Jesus, these signs didn't actually lead people to believe in him. Just like in the Synoptics, they see him do these amazing things, but actually they refuse to believe that he's sent from God, they refuse to believe that he's the Messiah. And so, just as Paul had to do in Romans, just as Matthew does in his gospel, John has to explain how can it be that all these signs take place, but so many of the Jews actually don't believe in Jesus and don't respond to him. And he does that in chapter 12, at the end of this first section of the gospel, just as Jesus is ending his public ministry. He quotes there, we won't look at it in detail, but he quotes from a couple of places in Isaiah. And he says, actually, the reason that people are not believing is this is a fulfillment of prophecy. When Isaiah is called to prophesy, he's told to go, and he's told actually that he's prophesying, it's kind of going to make things worse, because as people here, they're going to put up their defences, as it were, and they're going to refuse to listen and refuse to respond. And John says, or uh, John says, the, say, the works of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, were actually doing the same thing. But like all the New Testament authors, he holds together this tension between the divine providential control, i.e. God has ordained that these people will not believe in these signs, with human free choice because it says they should have believed and John gives us an explanation the reason there was this uh, mixed response to Jesus's uh, signs was because that's what God has ordained and what God had prophesied in scripture and the reason he puts that in is he doesn't want Jews to read this and think well if Jesus did all this stuff why are all my Jewish mates not believing in Jesus actually showing no no God is in control even of that which if you think back to week three and mark four and similar places in Matthew and Luke when Jesus talks about the parables, is exactly what he says there. These parables actually come to be divisive things, and prophecy says that actually for some people, it will harden their ears. It will actually uh, almost make the situation worse. They're not going to respond. They're going to turn away from Jesus. So that's the signs, and often in John's Gospel, you have a sign, and then that will lead on to a discourse, a long bit of teaching from Jesus. And Jesus' discourses in John are often quite complex and you have to read slowly and you have to try and trace out what he's saying. 
And one of the prominent things, which is almost distinctive in John's Gospel, is what are called the I am statements, where Jesus says, I am uh, something. And these are often linked to these signs. And there are three different types of these. There are the times when Jesus says, I am something. So I am the bread of life, or I am the door for the sheep. There, there are those where, because of the context, we know when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am, for example, the Messiah. Your example there, John 18, they've just been talking about the Messiah, asking him if he's the Messiah. And when he says, I am, he's clearly saying he is. But then the more difficult ones, there are those where Jesus literally just says, I am. End of. There's no uh, thing that he is. There's no explanation of what that is. And so we need to just pick apart the different three types and see what each one is telling us. The first one, you've got the, I think it's seven examples that occur in the gospel listed there. Each one speaks of Jesus metaphorically and reveals something about his mission or something what he's doing. And this is the bit where the Old Testament context almost always is necessary to understand. So one example, Jesus says in, where is this, John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And we're meant to hear that, and we're meant to remember that in Isaiah, in several places, in the servant songs, talking about this figure whom God is going to use to deliver his people, the servant is said to be a light to the nations. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be linked to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah and to be performing that task. Or when he says, um, I am the good shepherd, it links to pictures of people like Moses and David being shepherds in the way they lead God's people. But importantly, it also links to the fact that God himself reveals himself as a shepherd. And in the same passage, a really important passage in Ezekiel 34, God reveals himself as a shepherd, and he says the Davidic Messiah who's going to come will be a shepherd for his people. So he's not just using this nice kind of pastoral image of Jesus kind of cares for us and is a, a good shepherd and protects us, which is absolutely true, and it's, it's in that teaching. But actually he's saying something much more profound. He's saying God has told you that he is the shepherd, and the one coming to perform his act of deliverance is a shepherd. No, I'm saying I'm the good shepherd. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of that. A claim pretty much to divinity and a claim certainly to be God's promised Messiah. And almost all these ones, we could do each one of the seven, they all link to places in the Old Testament that are talking about this act of deliverance, this future salvation that God is going to bring. So when Jesus says, I am uh, the vine or I am the resurrection and the life, he's declaring that he is the one through whom God is breaking into history and fulfilling all of his promises. The second type, kind of crossover between the first and the third. So they have elements of the first and elements of the third. So jumping to the third are these weird ones where Jesus just says, I am, and says pretty much nothing else. Interestingly, there are some places in Mark's gospel where we have the same thing. So another example where even though John, John's Jesus speaks very differently, there's evidence in the synoptics that he really did uh, speak this way. When Jesus just says, I, uh, I am, or ego eimi, as it is in the Greek, he could just be saying, it's me. So if someone, you know, shouted out and said, who's that? I could say, Ego Amy, it's me. But actually, it seems like there are examples that doesn't work. In 858, Ab um, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, it's me. It doesn't really make any sense. I am must have some deeper meaning that people are meant to pick up on. Often this has been linked to Exodus 3, the encounter of God with Moses at the burning bush, where God reveals to Moses his name as I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Um, the problem with this is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it doesn't fit quite so well. In the Greek translation, God says, Ego eimi ho on, I am the one being. And actually it's the one being 
not the I am, which becomes really important in Exodus 3. And so a better suggestion is actually that it comes from, in part, the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, but particularly from the second section of Isaiah, where on many occasions God is declaring his sovereignty, he's declaring that he is the creator and that he will be the people's deliverer. And he uses this I am ego eimi phrase on quite a lot of occasions, you've got the references there, to identify himself. So when Jesus stands and says before Abraham was, I am, he's linking himself with the creator and deliverer God who time and time again in Isaiah has made these great huge statements about himself and identified himself as I am. It seems most likely that certainly these examples which don't make sense as it is me or something are alluding to that and probably that most examples in John's gospel where Jesus says I am is alluding to that. He's claiming to be God. He's taking for himself the designation that God uses for himself in Isaiah. And I'm inclined to think that the same is probably happening in Mark's gospel as well. Mark 6 is where Jesus is walking on the water and there's Psalms which talk about God as the one who walks over the waves. So he's probably saying this is, uh, this is him showing he's God by walking on the waves, just as God does in the Psalms, and then by declaring, ego eimi, I am, as God does in Isaiah. So God's, uh, John is using these words to present Jesus as the one through whom uh, God is working out his definitive act of deliverance. Yeah. It seems a bit surprising that the other Gospels don't um, draw attention to how often Jesus has said that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It is, and it's probably, if there is an explanation, it's probably a matter of context. So what did Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke's readers know? Would they have got it kind of thing, I guess? Um, I agree, though. But I think the fact that it is in Mark three times um, does suggest it is historical. It's not just John's reflection, I think, is there. But in one sense, it's him somebody walking in the water, and they think it's the ghost. It's not a bit of a dismissed, mm. far more damning approach. Not that no. it's not a bad word, because anyone can be in water in this But it's far more mundane to most of them, so it's me, rather than the big theological, I am who I am. Yeah, you're definitely right, and it's almost certainly the case that one level of the meaning was it's me because that is what you'd probably say if someone said who are you over there walking the water you say it's me um but there's something deeper because there's these allusions to um the psalms and because i don't want to give the answer away to the next activity um I'm gonna do it. i can yeah hopefully it will come clear john like mark and i think matthew but not luke links two miracles together and the sequence or the background to both of them is quite important. Um, and you'll see in a minute why that probably means he is saying, I'm God. At which point, let's turn to John 6. There's an activity we're going to try and kind of do together. <coughs> John 6 is a good example of where you've got two signs, actually, and then you've got a discourse, which includes an I am statement. So everything we've just talked about kind of comes together, gathers together in John 6. So what we do... I'm going to give you two minutes, if we can't read it all through, but to skim through John 6, get in your mind what are the two miracles and what is the discourse about, and then we're going to have a discussion all together and try and draw out some of the, the meaning of it. Okay, I know you haven't read it, but hopefully you've got the very broad picture of what's going on. What then is the first miracle we find in John 6? It's a free-for-all, so shout at me. Excellent, great. The feeding of the 5,000. Now, what is the setting that's given to the miracle? Often the settings and kind of initial details are really important and useful. When is this taking place? (coughs) 
Good, yep, so the geographical setting is via Seal of Sea Gallery. Galilee. Excellent, it's a Passover. And now what, so Passover is one of the key Jewish festivals which celebrates what in Israel's history? Deliverance from Egypt, yeah, so the Passover, you know, means the passing over the angel of death and then the moving out uh, across the Red Sea into the desert, all of that whole thing. So immediately, by telling us the time when this has taken place, John has indicated there might be an Exodus link. And we've talked already about the fact that the Exodus was kind of the key act of deliverance of God in the Old Testament, which was paradigmatic for everything that God was going to do. And so as soon as we see something at the Passover, it's not necessarily going to be significant, but you should be aware this might be significant to what happens. With that in mind, so we've got Passover, we've got the provision of bread. What is coming to your mind from the Old Testament here uh, where those two things kind of come together? Oh, you're right, one of them is told to eat, eat odd things. That is true, which would do the bread bit but wouldn't do the Passover bit. So where... Excellent, yeah, yeah. So Passover, we've got Passover, we've got Exodus, we've got the desert, we've got a miraculous provision of food. We're meant to immediately think of the manna in the desert. And uh, uh, it was definitely a, a, an expectation in the time of Jesus that when the Messiah came, the manna would restart. So text like Tuberuk has the expectation that the Messiah would bring new manna. So to a person at the time reading this, Jesus is kind of bringing new manna, immediately thinks this is God's promised one. And then looking a bit further on the narrative, what's the result that comes after this sign? What do people uh, say when they see the sign? Mm, excellent. Not even just a prophet, they think he is the prophet who is to come into the world. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Still thinking of this whole Exodus? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be a prophet who comes after Moses, one of the earliest Old Testament prophecies about a kind of Messiah figure coming, but this one's going to be a prophetic one. So they've interpreted Jesus' actions. They've uh, rightly seen, they point to him as a Messiah. They point to him as the great prophet whom God was going to send at the end of the age to bring his act of deliverance. What then is the next miracle? Walking in water. Still thinking this whole conceptual world, what might the significance of walking, walking over water be when we've had a whole thing of Passover and the Exodus and the manna in the desert, where might water come in? Excellent, yeah, yeah. Same story, isn't it? Like God parts the Red Sea and they walk through. So Jesus has done kind of in reverse, granted, he's done it in reverse, or maybe this is meant to allude to crossing the Jordan afterwards, I don't know, but uh, the Israelites cross the, through the dry land, through the sea, come to the desert in a given manner. Jesus has just brought manna-like stuff and is now walking across the waters. Do you see now where I was coming of there's more to it as to why it seems it might be God? The same thing in Mark. You have the feeding of the 5,000, uh, then you have Jesus walking on water. You're meant to hear lots of Exodus overtones um, of God, God doing something, which is why I think I would hear more there than just it is me. Um, and then there's teaching that comes after. It's quite a long discourse that flows from this. It actually happens the next day when people come looking for Jesus. And what is the, the theme of this this discourse what's the key message or maybe the key statement jesus makes about himself yeah i am the bread of life and jesus says all sorts of things but he the people say oh you know God, uh, moses gave us bread in the desert and God, jesus says no no it wasn't moses who gave the bread it was god who gave the bread he says god gives bread and then he says i'm the true bread 
i.e. I'm the one who God has now given you to sustain you. And he talks about himself metaphorically as the one whom you have to eat as the bread to then have eternal life. So you see how these signs have showed us something about who Jesus is. They showed us that he is the prophet whom God was going to send. They have linked him to his act of deliverance. He's walked over the seas to be a picture of God's crossing of the Red Sea, again linking him to the act of deliverance. And then the discourse that comes afterwards explains more of what that means, explains more of Jesus' identity in that, explains the bread even, that even that is a picture of the need to consume, metaphorically, Jesus in order then to have eternal life with him. And that's the kind of thing with John, that's the kind of level you need to be thinking on. And that can be quite difficult depending on how much we like uh, reading and thinking slightly more abstractly like that. And that's where a commentary will be really helpful in just guiding you to this is the kind of conceptual background going on behind and will help you to get a bit of the story of what's going on. <coughs> Let's jump on. Let me briefly do the farewell discourse and then we'll get to the main activity of the day on Jesus' death. With the end of chapter 12, we reach the end of this first part of the ministry of the signs and the discourses. And then the first, that's the first 11 chapters of John. And that covers probably three years, actually less than three years, I guess, or just up to it, um, in 11 chapters. The last nine chapters of the book tell us just about the last week of Jesus' life. But a whole five of those are dedicated to the night of the Last Supper and to Jesus' teaching on that time, which suggests that John thought this was really, really important for us. This is kind of a long, uh, this is kind of Jesus' last words, his last speech in the ancient world. It was quite a common thing to have a long speech on your deathbed or, you know, just before you die, often at a meal. So the most famous one is um, Plato's Symposium, which tells of Socrates, how he gave this long speech before he dies. We get a bit of that in Luke's Gospel. He's got a bit of what people call table talk with them talking around the table of the Last Supper. But John particularly has actually ignored all the stuff about the bread and the wine and has put to the forefront Jesus' teaching given on that night. And uh, there's lots of things we could say, but let me just quickly draw out kind of the key themes. These chapters, uh, particularly, I guess, 14 up to 17, and especially 17, are some of the most rich theological stuff in the New Testament. Chapter 17 particularly, or actually all of them, are incredibly important for understanding the Trinity in relation to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they definitely are worth doing a slow reading of at some point. Let me put out the key things. One is that Jesus talks about his death. It's quite a common theme. It's the night before, so it's on his mind. And as we're going to see in our activity in a minute, he talks about it a lot as a departure or a return to be with the Father. There's this big theme in John of Jesus. The word has come down and will go back again. There's this thing of a, a revealer coming down and then returning to be with the Father. Jesus talks a lot about his personal, his individual relationship with the Father, that he's in the Father, the Father is him. That, that means when we love Jesus, we're loving uh, God the Father. This uh, intimate relationship. The purpose of Jesus' coming is that we might be united with Jesus and the Father and might actually experience in the love which they've shared for all eternity. And this is one of the most incredible statements in the whole Bible, the end of uh, John 17. Jesus is praying for us as believers and his prayer is that we might be brought into the unity and the love that the, the members, the persons of the Trinity have experienced for all of creation. That is the end goal of salvation, that you and I, might partake in the love which was perfectly within God being shared among the three persons of the Trinity, but was so great it overflowed to create us and so great it overflowed again to incorporate us into that. It's mind-boggling um, that God would do that. 
And then he talks about the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that when he goes, the Holy Spirit is going to come to his people. He calls him the, the paraclete, which is a really hard word to translate, which is why across English translations, there's all sorts of variety. It comes from a verb which means to call alongside or to encourage. So it has some sort of meaning about encouraging, about supporting. And so helper probably is uh, the best or a most useful translation. It's through the Holy Spirit that the Father and the Son are going to dwell inside of believers when they live God's way. He's also going to come and teach and remind disciples of Jesus' words. He's going to be involved in mission. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to witness just as you are going to witness. There's a, a partnering going on there. He's also going to come and convict the world of sin. And he's going to come with his primary task is to glorify Jesus. So anything that the Holy Spirit does is going to be glorifying Jesus, which is glorifying the Father, because Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. And he also gives us teaching about uh, what it means to be a believer. Uh, it flows from the washing of the disciples' feet. He doesn't have the bread and wine, but he does have Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And this is a, a demonstration Jesus putting into action, showing his uh, self-sacrificial love of other people. It's meant to be a pointer to the way he's going to die for them. But then Jesus also says it's to be a pointer to what you're to do for each other, that you are to love each other and serve each other, maybe not literally in that way, but by doing the same kind of thing, to wash someone's feet in the ancient context was you know, one of the kind of most humbling, debasing things you could do. But Jesus is saying, I'm doing this for you uh, as an act of love towards you, and you are to love each other in the same way. Disciples are to love each other through self-sacrificial love, following Jesus' example. And actually, it's that, Jesus says, which should mark us out. The thing that should make people realise, actually, we're followers of Jesus, is the way that we love each other. Uh, disciples must abide in Jesus and thereby bear fruit. That's a big theme in these chapters. And keep Jesus' commands as an expression of their love for him. He doesn't say that loving Jesus is keeping commands. Love is a separate thing. Love is a genuine affection. But from that will automatically follow and automatically flow keeping God's commandments. He talks about hope for times of difficulties, particularly he talks about the fact that we're going to be rejected because Jesus was rejected, but the comforter will come, the helper will come, and it will help us, given support and encouragement in those times. And in the last chapter, chapter 17, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. That's the bit that actually should be called the Lord's Prayer. The one we know should be the disciples' prayer, because that's for us. This is actually the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus prays. He prays first that the Father would be glorified, through the Son, through what he's about to do. Then he prays for believers, for protection for believers. It's a very encouraging passage to read, if ever you're just feeling life's a bit tough. And then he prays, as I've said, for believers of all times, all of us, to enjoy fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, in a way we're experiencing the love that has always been within the Trinity. Do read those chapters slowly, carefully. Um, there's so much rich stuff in there. The last main thing I want to do, though, is to talk about the death of Jesus. We've seen through Matthew, Mark, Luke that each gospel writer gives their own um, perspective on the death of Jesus and that through the way they narrate the story, they are interpreting it as they go. But another way, actually, of understanding how does each gospel writer understand the death of Jesus is to ask what they've already said about it throughout the gospel. And John has loads to say about Jesus' death uh, in the course of the gospel leading up to the actual passion narrative. So we're not going to look at the passion narrative itself, but we're going to look at some of these places where Jesus talks about his forthcoming death, 
Because when we get to the Passion narrative, we're meant to interpret everything that happens to what Jesus has already said. Okay. A good murmur there. So I hope you've got some stuff out of these passages. Let's start with the first ones. This is John, if you want to follow with us, everyone. This is John 2, verses 13 to 22. Just after the turning of water to wine and the wind at Cana. Um, do you want to just summarise for us what Jesus says about his death in this passage? Um, yeah, he said, um, destroy this temple and uh, I'll raise it up in three days. And of course the Jewish scholars have got the wrong idea. They think he was talking about the temple built before. He's saying he is the temple of God. Excellent, yeah. yeah. And that came out from <laughs> God really, God and God really. Excellent, yeah, yeah. Jesus yeah. says, destroy his temple and in three days I'll build it again. And then John has a comment telling us this is talking about himself, but the disciples didn't realise this until after the death and resurrection. And you're, you are right, he's not talking about, talking about that temple, sorry, he's not talking about that temple, physical temple, but of course he has just driven out the money changers and the sellers like he does in the synoptics, which is a statement of judgment upon, um, upon the temple. And what about, did, so bearing on what we said about the prologue, um, <coughs> Can you think of any links between what Jesus is saying about himself and his death here and what the prologue said about Jesus? Um, well, the prologue said that, uh, that Jesus would be effectively rejected because he said he came to the yep. and though he did not receive him. Absolutely. So there's the rejection we got there from the authorities. And what about the word became flesh bit? Do you remember what we said? What is that alluding to? There's creation and there's exodus, there's the tabernacle. Because we've already heard that Jesus is with the word become flesh and pitched his tent among us. He became the tabernacle among us. So we as readers, even though the Jewish authorities are not understanding what Jesus is saying, we're meant to hear and think, oh, tabernacle, temple, same thing, different place, different time. Uh, this is Jesus talking about himself. Excellent, yeah. And this one's really important as well because it has that after three days of rebuild it. So here's one of the prediction, not just of his death, but also of his resurrection. Thank you, guys. Um, group at the back, for you, chapter 3, this is chapter 3, verse 14, 15, and chapter 8. What was the common theme between these two passages? Um, Jesus being risen to die. Mm. And a lot of ass nights. <laughs> a lot of ass nights. <laughs> is that just in 3 or is it 8 as well? Yes, but not, not snakes. Um, yes, yeah, so why do you think he might use the term lifted up for his death? Good, yep, so there's a level of a, a physical lifting, you're lifted upon a cross. Excellent, yeah, and exalted in a sense that that was how he was being uh, exalted, lifted to uh, rule with God. And also crucifixion was deliberately seen as an ironic thing. It was used for those who had started uprising and who had tried to lift themselves up above the ruling authorities. And so basically they said, because you tried to lift yourself up above us in authority, we will lift you up um, kind of emasculated and you know, uh, powerless on a cross. So that, that irony was there in crucifixion in general. But then John says actually there's an even deeper irony that Jesus is lifted up on a cross, but that actually is how he is lifted up to his position with God. And what The virtue of the idea. So, yeah, I, I, no, 
So he says, I'll be lifted up. Oh, I see, I'm, I'm <coughs> potentially. So Jesus, just to fill in something else, Jesus uh, says he's going to be lifted up. And uh, sorry, let me actually get it right. Um, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in the wilderness, there's a point when the Israelites are bitten by poisonous serpents. And the way that God um, saves them from this, heals them from this, is by Moses has to make a bronze serpent, has to hold it up. And anyone who looks upon the serpent will be healed from the uh, you know, infection, whatever it is that you get from these bites. <coughs> I'm not, on my feet here, I'm not sure there's a significance in what it is in terms of what it's made of. The, the pure thing is God has promised to do something and are you going to respond in faith? So the thing is, when they look to the serpent, the bronze serpent, and trusted, they are saying, I'm trusting that God is going to uh, heal me because I'm doing what he says. And in the same way that healed a physical ailment, Jesus is saying, actually, he on the cross is going to be healing the bigger ailment of humanity, which is sin. Does that help? And then what will be the results of Jesus' death according to these verses? Good, yeah. Live eternally, have eternal life. Exactly, yeah. So chapter 8, there's nothing about eternal life, but just the, he says his death actually is going to prove who he is. So much like we found in Mark, and like we're finding a minute in the resurrection narratives, actually Jesus' way of dying, even that actually proves who he is. And in chapter 8. Oh, 39. Am I looking? Which verse? Sorry, Robin, I'm lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, right, yeah, he sent me to me. Yeah, all throughout, John, we've got this very close interplay between the three people of the Trinity, a regular, regular, regular theme. Did you get a chance to look at the Isaiah passages, and did that shed any light um, upon what Jesus is saying here. Good. And in Isaiah, who is raised up and exalted? One of the suffering servant, yeah. So chapter 52. Um, Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Again, there's this irony thing of high and lifted so exalted, but Jesus is alluding to Isaiah. Isaiah is very big in John. And then <coughs> think of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has the vision in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the king high and lifted up. And then Isaiah 57, verse 15. Um, For thus says the one, this is God, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. To those in Jesus' audience who are very familiar with Isaiah, even the nature of him being lifted up is meant to associate him with the suffering servant who would come and um, die for the sake of people, although they didn't get that at the time, and God himself, even here as a claim to divinity. Excellent, thank you, group. Um, John 10, you guys in the middle. What does Jesus say um, about his death here? Who's in control of it? Definitely, yeah. And he really stresses that, doesn't he? He is the one. He will lay down his life and he will take up his life again. And what does Jesus seem to imply will be the result of his death? 
Excellent, excellent, yeah. Jesus' death is going to lead to the incoming of the Gentiles. You're exactly right. They're not of this fold or flock. This isn't the Good Shepherd discourse, meaning to people who aren't Jews. Actually, it's going to bring Gentiles in as well. And then, I'm over to announce this, what, according to verse 17, will Jesus do after his death? Exactly, yeah. He's going to lay his life down, but also, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. So again, we've got a prediction of resurrection here, and again, Jesus' control. And right throughout the Passion narrative in John, much more than any other Gospels, there's this theme of Jesus is in control. Nothing phases him, nothing happens out of his control um, all the way through. Thank you, yep. That's a real question, no. So I guess when Jesus is initially saying it, it's baffling because no one's expected it, no one's thought it. Albeit that, there were ideas particularly of wisdom. So wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs, in 8 particularly, which though not seen as God is very close to being God. So though there was no concept of multiple persons within the one being of God, there were things very close. And even the fact, you know, the Logos and the Mediator and people like Philo, who was a Jewish kind of philosopher in Egypt, he had put the Logos almost as God. He, he calls him kind of semi-God or something. So he's not God, but he's as close as you can be without being God. So I guess it's a step on from those ideas. Um, but then I think by the time you get to the 80s, 90s, when John's writing, among Christians, there would be much more idea. Because you've got very clear Trinitarian stuff in Paul, writing to Corinthians in the 50s. So this is a good 30 years later. So... Yeah, no, I agree. You sometimes think, or should I say this? Yeah, you sometimes think, I'm not surprised he didn't get this straight away. <laughs> and when Jesus is really annoyed with him, you kind of think, I'm not sure I would have got it straight away. Um, yeah, then you're right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. The word, the name, the word Elohim, God, is plural in Hebrew, but for there are plurals of majesty, which are kind of you're trying to say something is so great and amazing that you use a plural, which I think explains that. But there is the fact that in Genesis one, God says, "Let us make man in our own image." You don't get verbs of majesty. That has to be explained somehow. And the best candidate is the Spirit of God in Genesis two or Genesis one, two or verse three. I thought it was one or two or three. Um, they were, but what they, they didn't think of it, to what we know, as a separate person within the one being of God. How they conceive the Holy Spirit is actually a bit hard for us to know. But you're right, even in Genesis 1, there's the glimmer of the Holy Spirit hovering over the water. And then, let us make man in our own image. There is got to be something there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The glimmer is, is, is progressively revealed as Scripture goes on. Were you guys, chapter 11, verse 45 onwards. Um, so, oh, this is cool, yeah. What's going on in this little scene? Oh, it's fine. So the Jews are in plotting to kill Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. They're very worried about all these signs that he's doing that people are believing him. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, says something. What does he say? Well, so the, uh, the thing about mm. what were they worried about was partly the politics of it. They were worried about the Romans. Mm. 
good, yeah. yeah. <coughs> yes, if these people say Jesus is king, the Romans are going to clamp down on us and get rid of us. Really good, yeah. No, definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what does Caiaphas say, this high priest? Mm, without even knowing it. Caiaphas says, guys, you know, we're worried about people kind of getting excited about Jesus and the Romans coming and stopping us. He said the easy thing to do, the best thing is just to kill one man, get rid of him, the problem is solved. He says, um, do, do, you, do you not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole p- nation should perish? Now he's talking about the Romans coming in. What he doesn't realise is he has prophesied more than he knows. It is much better for everyone if this one man dies in our place than that all of us should perish. And John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Um, and then before I give the answer, what was the result of Jesus' death according to this passage? Excellent, yeah, yeah. So we've got both Jews and again the Gentiles coming in like we had in the previous one and this theme of becoming children of God which we found in the prologue. No, good point. Good question. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It could be, it could be either one, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure. Either or both, probably. Um, and then last one. Let's zip through. You guys here in twelve twenty. How does Jesus destri- describe his death, and why might he do that? Plan and glory, so yeah, yeah. The hour, yeah, so we've got the hour to plan, the definite kind of time for it, the Son of Man to be glorified. Why might he talk about it as a glorification? I'm trying to think how to tease this out for you. It goes back to this lifting up thing, this exalting thing, and the irony of being exalted in a cross is actually how glorification comes. And so, you know, it looks like a really shameful thing, or crucifixion was a really shameful thing in the context, but actually Jesus is saying this is his point of victory, so it's the point of glorification, which is why often, as I said, this half of the Gospels called the Book of Glory, it's quite a common way Jesus talks about his death. And then what's the interpretation that Jesus gives to his birth? He says that something's going to happen um, metaphorically. He talks about it in verse 24. Mm, what happens to wheat? Mm. Sorry? Good. And what happens when it dies? Good. So when a thing of wheat dies, it falls to the ground, it scatters its seeds, and then more fruit comes. And Jesus is saying metaphorically, in the same way that he's got to die, in order that more fruit might come through his death having taken place. And then this is a bit harder. Did the last verses, 25 and 26, sound similar to anything we've heard in the Synoptic Gospels? Good. What did they sound similar to? Good which is just after the Passion Prediction, isn't it? So if you think back to Mark, we had the Passion Prediction. Jesus, or we have, sorry, Jesus uh, recognises the Christ. We have Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. Then we have the thing about if you want to save your life, you need to lose your life. Um, take it to a cross and follow me. Here John has very similar stuff. We've just put in, because all these little clues we found, of even though they sound very different initially, there's all these overlaps that show actually this is Jesus in both ones. 
Excellent. Now I did the last one, which is, just comes after this, which again talks about the Son of Man being lifted up and uh, glorifying God through it. And really importantly, he says, this is just before the Passion narrative, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about the devil. He's saying that this death is going to be the way he defeats the ruler of this world, which is John's term um, for the devil. And it's a thing of triumph. And then again, he uses the language of being lifted up, this double meaning of being lifted up on the cross. And the result is when we've heard uh, elsewhere already, he says that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Much like we had in the Good Shepherd discourse, we may have had with the nation discourse with Caiaphas. And very much that's another Isianic uh, theme in Isaiah that the nations are going to come to the mountain of God, Isaiah 2, and later in Isaiah as well, this idea of the nations coming to him. Let's really quickly do the resurrection. As we said before, it's a much, much nicer place to finish. John has two chapters of resurrection accounts. We've already said chapter 20 and 21, which is probably this appendix um, added on. And I think that in chapter 20, we're meant to hear again this theme of new creation that was there right in the prologue. It's really striking in chapter 20 that the uh, resurrection is dated to the first day of the week. And Jesus, uh, John actually says that two times. He uses the phrase three times in verse 1 and then verse 19. We might have expected him to say it happened on the third day because we had with the temple uh, narrative, he said, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it again in three days. If Jesus wants to show he's fulfilled that, the logical language to use is that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. Actually, he chooses to say on the first day of the week. And I think he's trying to link back to this creation theme. If we take a step back, and if you look at this table in your uh, notes, on the Friday of um, Easter week, Holy Week, uh, Pilate, only in John's Gospel, Pilate presents Jesus to the people, and he shouts, Behold the man. On the sixth day of creation is the day that human beings are created, when God says, Let us make man in our own image, and where the uh, narrator declares, So God created man in his own image. There might be a kind of structural parallel there. And then in both narratives, the next day, the Saturday, the seventh day, is the Sabbath in Genesis, beginning of chapter 2. It's a Sabbath day where God rests in uh, John. 20 it's a sabbath day nothing happens that's why they hurry to bury jesus the day before and then genesis obviously doesn't go on in a sense then but the implication is a new week but john 20 starts with the first day of the week not the third day of the week the first day of the week which he says three times i think he's trying to trace out this thing we're meant to hear again this is a new creation he started the new narrative in john 1 like genesis 1 and now we're meant to hear again like a, a fresh start that comes with creation a new creation and there's a few other little clues for that. Jesus says on three occasions in chapter 20, he addresses the disciple with the greeting, peace be with you, which is a fairly common greeting at the time, and yet it's never actually used in the gospel before this point. Uh, he's promised peace several times in that farewell discourse. There he linked it with the Holy Spirit, and here we have mentioning the Holy Spirit as well. And it's quite plausible in context that here peace is having the, the very wide meaning of the Hebrew shalom, that it's this kind of fulfillment of everything God had promised. When God's peace came would be when all the promises of God had been fulfilled, all the problems that were introduced to the world through sin had been dealt with. It's probably, I think, um, a very clever way of showing us that that has broken in. Even the fact that Jesus breathes upon the disciples, some have pointed out, could be kind of an allusion and a, a reminiscence of Genesis 2, where God breathes the breath of life into the man who he's formed. There's all these things which make us think, again, of the themes of creation. John is declaring that with Jesus, new creation has broken in 
to the world. And of course, when John gets to write the book of Revelation, there will be a huge theme as he ends with his great vision of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But the resurrection narratives in chapter 20 kind of draw together and draw to a close really with these whole themes of Jesus' identity and of believing in Jesus. The two things that have been central throughout the gospel. And it ends with Thomas's doubts and Thomas wanting to see the marks. And when Thomas finally sees the marks on Jesus' body and the, the gash on his side from the spear, he stands and he declares, my Lord and my God. This is a pinnacle point in John's narrative. We are told, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is God. And now someone has explicitly stated that. Just like in Mark, it's because of the death and resurrection that it becomes clear who Jesus is. That passage in John 8 where it said the lifting up of the Son of Man is going to show you who he really is has come to reality here as Thomas becomes the spokesperson for disciples in recognising that Jesus truly is God. But then because of this whole particular uh, focus on believing in John's gospel, Jesus then pronounces a blessing on those who, unlike Thomas, do believe in Jesus even though they haven't actually seen him. For those actually who are going to come later in generations and generations to come who truly believe even when they haven't seen. And then we had that second appendix. Now, I love the way um, that this appendix ends, ends saying, now there are so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But God, as we know, has decided that four books are enough for us. And so now through each week, we've seen these different perspectives coming to Jesus through Mark, through Matthew, through Luke, and through John. And next week, we're going to tie together some of the pieces we looked at, some of the difficult passages, try and give a conclusion to that big question we posed first week. Why are there four Gospels, not just one? Remember, we're not in here. Yeah, not next week. So uh, jump a week, uh, a week, two weeks today in Coffee Box from 7.30. We'll see you there.